welcome to Counterpunch Radio. My name is Eric Dreitzer. I want to thank you so much for tuning in to episode 35. Now, uh, a lot to cover this week, some major developments, some major political analysis that I think is going to be very useful for people. However, before we can turn to that, I do want to uh, do my usual pitch for Counterpunch. We have a very important project uh, called Counterpunch that you're obviously well aware of if you've uh, if you're listening to this show, but let me just tell you that one of the great ways to support Counterpunch is with a print subscription, a subscription to the magazine. Now, bi-monthly, longer, more in-depth, more articles, the, the, the same old columns that you're used to, new stuff as well, great artwork, love to get that magazine in the mailbox, and of course, it's a great way to support what we do at Counterpunch. So, uh, please feel free to get that subscription and become a part of the Counterpunch project. Also, you can give us a uh, positive review on iTunes, help spread the word about this show, bring it to more listeners, always a great way to help support us as well. Now, with that out of the way, let me turn to my guest this week. Um, I'm very happy to have Alice Backer on the program. Alice is a lawyer and social media strategist. She is the founder of HaitianBloggers.com, Haitian Bloggers on Facebook and on Twitter. You can also find her work at her website, Kiskeosity.com. That's K-I-S-K. E-A-C-I-T-Y dot com. And I highly recommend her very important, very useful podcast, Legacy of 1804. Follow her on Twitter. Uh, follow her on her website. Very uh, large social media presence. An expert on Haiti. I'm very happy to have her on the program. Alice, welcome to Counterpunch Radio. Thanks so much, Eric, for having me. And especially thank you so much for spelling my uh, website, Kiskeosity, so accurately. Um, and people can find my personal Twitter is at Kiskeosity. Um, so that, that would be where they would find me um, on Twitter. Great. Thank you so much for that. So um, you are probably one of the foremost experts on uh, not just Haiti in terms of what's happening today, but the larger issue of Haiti, because it's in many ways a news topic, but also, I think, a, a, a discourse unto itself. So I want to cover everything, including the current situation, uh, as well as some of the historical uh, things that people need to know, and of course, the relevance of Haiti to our current Current, uh, circus that we call a presidential election campaign. But let's start with what's happening right now. This is a critical moment in Haiti. Uh, we have this, this election issue that's really been dragged out now for months and months. Um, what is the current situation with regard to the elections, the disputes over what's going to happen? Uh, what do people need to understand? I, I of course, just want to say I know a lot of people probably don't even know what's happening in Haiti. So maybe we could start with a little bit of background and bring us forward to today. Yeah, well, um, we are currently in a transitional situation. Uh, we, um, the, um, the term of the last uh, president, uh, Michel Martelly, just uh, ended in February and he left office. Um, and uh, he was supposed to be replaced by uh, the newly elected president, but unfortunately that 
uh, election, um, which was being railroaded towards a, a, a selection, um, got uh, put on hold and a, um, a provisional temporary uh, president was uh, designated, uh, whose name is Jocelyn Priver. And, uh, and, and right now, they're basically trying to figure out who is going to be his prime minister. Um, and that, uh, that provisional temporary president, uh, Jocelyn Priver, is supposed to only be in office for 120 days. And those postponed elections are supposed to happen by sometime in May. Uh, those, those postponed presidential, but also all elections in the country. Um, and, and really, there is so much to unpack yeah. uh, that I could keep delving into more and more detail and granularity, but I almost don't want to do that because I almost don't want to confuse people too, too much. So I'd rather just really respond to your prodding sure. of, this, of this overall situation. But that's where we are right now, where uh, we're, uh, we're, we, have a, we have a temporary president who is supposed to organize elections and, 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 and who's, who's supposed to be succeeded by an elected president as of May. Yeah, well, let's let's just back up for a second. We have more or less two major camps, two major uh, focuses or foci in, in this election that people should be aware of. On the one hand, the outgoing president, Marta Lee, who was, to a large extent, basically a hand-picked, uh, selected president by certain forces uh, in the United States, which we'll get to in a bit, um, and his chosen successor. So tell us us a little bit about the chosen successor for Martelly, uh, who is Moise, and who, uh, what is Lavelas on the other side? Um, and maybe, you know, you could take those one at a time, however you want to do that. Okay. All right. So his chosen successor uh, is uh, now, and, and that is separate from the, uh, from the uh, temporary president, by the way. So his chosen successor, the person who, if all had gone well for the State Department, would have become president and would be in office now is Jovenel Moise, mm-hmm. who is the uh, the heir of Martelli in his uh, PHTK party, which is Parti Haïtien Tête Cali, and who is essentially uh, a complete unknown quantity on the Haitian political scene, someone who no one had ever heard of until... Uh, Martelli needed a, a successor and put him on the national scene, who is allegedly a banana entrepreneur. Um, and, you know, because I follow social media so closely, I'm privy to a lot of uh, what is unofficial talk, what is small talk that happens on the web. And, and a lot of people thought that, you know, he was not just a banana entrepreneur. There were persistent rumors that he's, in fact, a cocaine trafficker. Uh, rumors that I have not personally uh, verified, but just to give you some of what uh, a lot of the uh, objection to him was. So complete unknown quantity, showed up on the scene um, and uh, out of nowhere placed uh, it well enough, received supposedly enough votes in that sham election that he was going to, that he basically went on to the second round. Okay. Uh, and across from him in that second round was uh, none other than Jude Celestin, who is a um, who is a former president René Préval's uh, chosen successor, um, and uh, René Préval having been the president before Martelly, 
And since you you kind of want to see things in this kind of you know dual uh, framework, um, Jude Celestin is the uh, is the candidate of an offshoot of Lavalas mm-hmm. um, that that kind of shot off from Lavalas all over ten years ago. All right, um, and and those were going to be the two people in that election. Um, at the end of January, which got postponed because at the very last minute and because there had been so many protests in the country starting uh, last year, um, ever since what some saw at the beginning of the electoral coup in Aug- on August 9th of 2015, there have been protests, uh, you know, that were persistent, uh, that uh, that uh, that reunited several uh, sectors in Haitian society. Uh, people from all walks of life in Haiti were protesting what they considered to be a sham election. And at the, so at the last minute, the reason that election did not happen is that Jude Celestin decided not to actually uh, to drop out of the election because he felt like it was a selection and that he was not going to be given a fair shot and that essentially it was going to be a coronation of, of, Jov- of, of Jovenel Moïse. And so that got uh, canceled well, it got canceled by Martelli himself, who up to that point had been steadfast that that election was going to happen mm-hmm. after essentially the State Department gave a, an unofficial signal that the election should be canceled. Uh, I think by virtue of some sort of press release or something like that, um, where they said, well, maybe something. I mean, it was kind of very tenuous. It was the first time that the State Department was, um, I think... Uh, was expressing doubt into uh, the viability of those elections, and, uh, and 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 then Martelli finally canceled them, and Martelli left office. Which one of the big fears was going to be that Martelli was going to try to hang on to power until his successor was ready to get in office. But because of an agreement, um, but but you know I, an agreement between Martelli and the. Um, and the parliament, not the opposition, the, the opposition was never part of that. Because of that agreement, uh, Martelli and the parliament decided to uh, name Jocelyn Privé uh, 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 temporary president uh, and, and, to, and, and to step down. Now, in, in terms of asking where Lavalas is, Lavalas has been throughout this protest um, uh, process, Lavalas has been. Lavalas has had its own candidate, Dr. Marise Narcisse, who um, nobody knows if it's correct, but she did not make it to the second round. But she uh, she has been part of the G8, um, which is this 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 group of eight who have kind of you know been um, a group of eight candidates who have who have been set steadfast in denouncing the fact that this election was fraudulent. Right. Now, there's so much there that I just want to be clear that people know (laughs) exactly exactly (laughs) what we're getting at here. So let's just take one step at a time. I think what you're saying, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but basically the the reason why that initial election had to be canceled was that when uh, and you you pronounce it so beautifully i feel like ridiculous even trying to pronounce it correctly but uh celestan uh 
when when Celestine dropped out, it basically took away any even veneer of legitimacy to the elections, and it forced Martelli's hand to basically cancel these elections because the whole point, as you were getting at, is that there needed to be even, especially on the for the international side of this, there needed to be this uh, pretext or this uh, the you know this presentation that the election was legitimate, and without that major candidate there, it looked totally and transparently illegitimate. That's why they suspended the elections. Yes. Yes. Right. Very well put. Okay. So, so, and then we have this secondary question of Lavelas. Now, so that people understand what we're talking about, Lavelas is the movement that for a long time and to some degree still today is at least symbolically fronted by Jean-Bertrand Aristide and historically has been uh, marginalized by the United States. Is that correct? Yes. Okay, good. Now, let's, so... What you're telling me then, and just uh, for so that listeners understand, we've had this uh, group of candidates or this group of people representing Lavelas, including uh, Narcisse, and they have been, to a large extent, marginalized in this entire process. And that's really kind of one of the wild cards of this whole electoral uh, uh, drama. Yes, um, absolutely. Uh, in fact, uh, it was very surprising. Jean-Bertrand Aristide being back in the country, uh, it was actually, it was first of all surprising that he didn't run himself, but uh, apparently there are forces preventing, preventing him from doing so. And Marise Narcisse, who had been his representative throughout his exile from Haiti, is the one who uh, presented her candidacy. Um, but, you know, uh, I think you're correct in saying that, um, uh, you know, the Lavalas of Aristide and the, and the uh, you know and and the Lavalas of Aristide who had to go into exile and the Lavalas of today, uh, you know they're not exactly the same. Mm-hmm. And um, there have been critiques from the left of Lavalas that that Maïs Nalcis was too uh, was not virulent enough in this whole election process. In other words, she was part of the people protesting the fraud, but you know some people thought that it was she was all like all the other candidates. She was doing what is at, at this point basically. Uh, you know, uh, standard operating procedure for um, uh, Haitian candidates, which is that she was definitely, you know, it it appears like at every step of what they're doing, Haitian candidates have to go and, you know, spend time speaking to the American ambassadors, spend time speaking to the EU ambassadors, spend time speaking to the UN, spend time speaking to EOS. And she was doing just as much of that as all the other candidates. So, you know, there there have been issues uh, and questions about, um, you know, exactly... Um, you know how how different she functions from from the other candidates, and I think she placed five uh, fifth in that in that initial in the first round of elections. Well, um, officially, officially. So, so if I'm understanding what you're saying correctly, and some of the other people that I've spoken to have kind of alluded to this as well, there is an open question whether Narcisse, and really to some degree Lavalas as a whole, is in effect a form of controlled opposition. Yeah, this has been um, this has been uh, whispered. Uh, there, there are people who say it out loud, um, uh, and. Let me just say that, um, you know, whereas there's this tendency to kind of want to describe everything in black and white, 
the very first, first of all, we got the beginnings of this UN occupation that we have right now under Aristide. Mm -hmm. uh, we also got the beginnings of the rampant privatization under Aristide. Aristide, it is, well, it is under Aristide that we, we saw the Haitian uh, telecommunications company, the, which was a, which was a, which was a state, uh, which was a government run company become privatized. Um, including to some elements linked to the Kennedys and, uh, you know, and the uh, American Democratic Party. So, you know, the way that things occur in Haiti is not just that it's the official right wing that gets control, but indeed there's there's tons of um, uh, involvement and uh, tons of, uh, um, uh, you know, uh, 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 remote controlling of the of of the of the Lavalas wing as well. So it would be better to kind of look at things from a perspective of who's pulling the strings, and from a perspective that these are that that these are entities that 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 have no uh, that aren't meddled with at all. Especially, you know, yeah, exactly. That's that's right. I mean, basically, what we're getting at is that. Haiti, to a large extent, um, both you know geographically, but also politically, is uh, in in many ways it is within the orbit of the United States. It is uh, occupied, uh, as you mentioned, by the UN. And maybe we should just talk a little bit about that for a second. Um, so. Tell us, and we'll get to the U.S., there's plenty to unpack there as well, but tell us a little bit about this U.N. occupation, because uh, you're not the only one, of course, who describes it that way. Many people who I follow who are vocal on this issue describe it quite literally as an occupation. So what is MINUSTA? When did MINUSTA come into being, and how does it actually function on the ground? Well, uh, Minusta, uh, I think. Uh, well, we got the we the very first set of troops we received were actually under Aristide when Aristide was returned in office uh, by uh, Bill Clinton. Um, we got our first set of U.S. troops um, on the ground, and uh, many who uh, look back and study this question of the occupation believe that that was the beginning. That that was the beginning of a very um, uh, very uh, kind of a trickling in of foreign troops. Um, so first we got that uh, the the troops brought by the the U.S. full fledged U.S. troops brought by Bill Clinton under Aristide, and then um, and then when Aristide was ousted again, we 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 all of a sudden became considered a country in need of quote unquote peacekeeping, even though we've never been at war with any country. Mm -hmm. uh, and we got a, a first uh, we got a um, a, like a you know a very small contingent we got a first un mission whose name i i don't i, I think there were a succession of two un missions one of them was minuha um and they were smaller and they appeared you know and and i i think that most of us haitians were not even you know didn't particularly think much of it and then um but 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 when the Minusta version arrived, we 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 now have at least six thousand foreign troops on the ground, um, and uh, by and large, uh, we know now, uh, thanks to the revelations of Ricardo Seitenfuss, former OAS official, uh, that, that that those those UN officials participated in what was the first electoral coup brought to us by the Hillary Clinton State Department in 2010, the, the, coup de, the electoral coup d'etat that put in office Michelle Martelly had at its helm 
um, you know, among the people f- trying to force René Préval to withdraw the candidacy of Jude Célestin and um, uh, facilitate the ushering into the second round of Martelli uh, without necessarily uh, having a, a backing in the number of votes he received uh, that the head of the UN at the time and several UN officials were instrumental at ushering in Martelli. Um, and this was true also of the OAS and, of course, of the U.S. ambassador and of the EU ambassador. And so, um, and so the UN, which is supposed to be the, the MINUSTA mission, which is supposed to be a peacekeeping mission, is now six over 6,000 soldiers strong, um, all of them you know, coming from all over the world, um, and is essentially there to make sure uh, from everything we've been able, from all the evidence we've had now and everything we've been able to conclude, number one, it represses whatever forces in the country would stand up um, against it or against the will of the UN, the US and the OAS, number one. And number two, uh, it, uh, uh, it, it is there to maintain a status quo of, um, of um, you know, by and large, to my understanding at this point, that mission is none other than a proxy for the U.S., yeah, that's right. right. And and I think the other the other aspect to this so that people can sort of keep it uh, straight in their minds is that when we had the that massive and disastrous earthquake uh, a few years back in Haiti, it really provided the, um, you know, the, the really convenient pretext to then create a full blown occupation slash uh, disaster capitalism scenario wherein Bill Clinton and the Clinton Global Initiative has been able to simultaneously use a UN occupation force to exert uh, political uh, control, control over the political process, while presiding over what amounts to a sell-off of Haiti to international investors from the US, from all over the world, for everything from the building of hotels, to the privatization of its infrastructure, to, uh, to the, you know, the whole raft of traditional uh, what Naomi Klein called disaster capitalism uh, uh, scenario. So let's talk a little bit about that because you mentioned MINUSTA as an occupation force, but I think you're quite correct to say that really it's not a UN occupation force in and of itself. It's really a US occupation force or maybe an occupation force in the service of Western neoliberal capital. Correct. Um, yeah, that's that's exactly it. That's that that's what we've seen um, from uh, you know making sure that uh, whatever candidates are uh, anointed by the State Department get in office, to repressing rebellions. Uh, much has been made of uh, several instances where the UN troops were instrumental at uh, repressing rebellions that were of, of people that were linked to Lavalas, for example. And this happened kind of you know several years back. Um, to, um, uh, I mean, you know, all sorts of issues involving, um, uh, I, there's also been quite a bit of, um, UN interference in, um, uh, securing or allowing, um, that some of the islands off of Haiti, uh, be, it, like you said, essentially, um, 
uh, turn into havens for, uh, you know, whether it's tourism havens or, uh, you know, neoliberal, uh, you know, capitalist forces, uh, you know, whether it's Ilavash or Lagunav more recently, which is, you know, yet another debacle, uh, which, you know, Aris, uh, Martelli having signed away the rights to Lagunav um, for it to become some sort of um, a development authority um, right before he left office. Um, yeah, we... The, the, the UN traces of the UN are and and of their and of their uh, bureaucracy in Haiti are are all over. For example, the UN was uh, uh, steadfast and and held you know right alongside the U.S. Uh, State Department and the U.S. Embassy in saying that you know there were right as all these protests were, were, were happening all the way to the last minute. The UN was right there along alongside the United States, saying there there had been no fraud in this election and they didn't think there was anything wrong with it and that it should just continue going along, knowing full well that it was supposed to lead to the coronation of uh, Jovenel Moïse. Yeah, and the other thing, the other thing here too, I think that um, we should sort of also consider is the fact that um, a lot of the problems that um, are traditionally associated with Haiti, um, a lot of them have actually been brought on by this occupation. So, for instance, um, you know, if you if you follow the news media coverage of, of of Haiti and especially from the UN, you do sometimes hear about you know these outbreaks of cholera, for example. But wait a second, cholera was was not present in Haiti until the United Nations stepped in, until their own uh, so-called peacekeeping forces brought it with them and created this outbreak while simultaneously having destroyed and not rebuilt the water systems, creating the uh, you know fertile ground for cholera epidemic, cholera outbreak. So, you know, there is on the one hand this uh, what I would call a conspiracy to cover up the role of the UN in exacerbating all all of these issues. And then also secondarily, you know, the question of why did this happen? How did this happen? And without any, you know, uh, fact finding on the ground. Yeah, well, at this point, uh, several reports have uh, uh, concluded, including a, a Yale report um, have concluded, uh, you know, there, there have been some coming from uh, a French scientist whose name escapes me now. Uh, and then most recently, a report came out of, of Yale. Um, not that we needed that, because on the ground, Haitians had known and were saying from the very beginning that that contingent from Nepal um, was the source of the cholera outbreak. Um, and so, uh, yeah, we now know, and there's plenty of evidence that uh, a uh, the Nepalese contingent of uh, the Minusta mission in Haiti brought the cholera, which was then um, recklessly or, uh, you know, or otherwise transmitted to the population through, uh, through water. Um, and uh, so much so that there's now a lawsuit uh, that being brought here in, uh, in federal court in the United States by IJDH, uh, the Institute for Justice and Democracy uh, in Haiti and, and other lawyers um, to, uh, to get compensation for the cholera victims from the UN. And uh, ironically or not ironically, uh, it is Justice Department lawyers <laughs> who are uh, arguing on behalf of the UN in that lawsuit and who are essentially saying that the UN has immunity 
because of a treaty, uh, uh, because of a 1946 convention, has immunity from, um, you know, uh, uh, complaints being brought against it in countries where it, uh, quote unquote, keeps the peace. Um, and and so that's where we are now. I think the toll is that about nine nine to ten thousand people have died um, from the cholera outbreak, and eight hundred thousand have been infected. Um, so yeah, so those are all of the reasons why at this point, uh, whereas I think there was probably a little too much tolerance of the UN troops initially, uh, at this point there there remains very little tolerance, or at least very little illusion that the UN is there to help Haitians on the ground in Haiti. Right. But so at the same time that that resistance becomes all the more apparent, the sort of the transparent uh, negative impact that the UN is having in Haiti, you have seen uprisings in some of the poorer and working class areas in Port-au-Prince and elsewhere in the country. And those uprisings are totally mis, at least from my perspective, and, you know, correct me if you think I'm wrong, but that they are mischaracterized as gang violence, mischaracterized as, you know, thuggery or whatever, that the UN occupation force and some of the other mercenary groups are then go in there to forcibly put this down. But in fact, from what I've seen and from my research, a lot of that is actually grassroots resistance against the occupation. Yeah, and this has been alleged uh, also of the the very famous Cité Soleil uprising that uh, that the UN uh, quelled really over five years ago. Um, yeah, correct. I mean, um, you know, I, I mean, but but aren't we used to that, right? Anyone exactly. who yeah. anyone who rebels is a thug. You know, they're they're just no good. They're criminals. You know, um, so yeah, this has been this has been a consistent uh, this has been a consistent uh, pattern. And we've seen a lot of the same, um, you know, tactics that that have been used elsewhere around the world, you know, targeted assassinations, use of, uh, you know, convenient use of snipers, paramilitaries, mercenaries, all of these things, uh, you know, targeted killings and so forth. Um, At the very same time that all of all of those things are going on, these are people in Haiti who are not simply, you know, resisting against an occupation, they're resisting against the destruction dismantling and systematic selling off of their of their infrastructure for instance famously the water infrastructure which uh, you know has been taken control of by well uh, you know to put it not so bluntly by the clinton global initiative and their you know their their fellow vultures yeah um what we're seeing also is uh well first of all a a, a replay of an undermining of the haitian state an undermining of um, what were, I guess, uh, you know, basically all of the fabric um, that was that was there to provide to provide social services uh, before these troops arrived, and a replacement of them as much as possible by a web of over three thousand NGOs that have received so much has been penned, so much ink <laughs> has been wasted on these NGOs that um, I, you know, I don't even need to bring them back up. But yeah, there's you know the the Haiti that I grew up in, the Port-au-Prince that I grew up in is 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 you can't recognize today because you you've got this presence. Everywhere you've got these these UN um, these UN troops everywhere. You've got uh, these foreigners, uh, these people who are not locals, running just about everything under the guise of an NGO, under the guise of a of a not for profit. Um, there's been a long tradition of um, the 
quote unquote breakfasts where all the donors meet, and this includes, of course, all the all the big agencies, um, have traditionally completely left out the Haitian government. Um, there and then, um, you know, really. Even most importantly, there's also the fact that 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 these this presence makes life for Haitians very expensive, makes it that you know real estate has gone up, uh, makes it that Haitians cannot afford things that they could afford before. Um, so it's it's a um, it's 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 kind of a reality that's completely skewed to this presence, which which um, uh, heightens the notion that we are under an occupation. Exactly. And and just one last point before we head to break. Um, this it's not simply a matter of, you know, dismantling and selling off uh, of Haiti in the way that we've been accustomed to with uh, disaster capitalism. There is also the creation of a, I think, what could be called a captive market. For instance, Haiti's ability to feed its own people using its own agricultural resources, using its own traditional agricultural methods and agricultural know-how, that has been eradicated completely forcing Haiti to be a captive market for none other than U.S. grown rice, U.S. grown wheat, U.S. agricultural products. So you have a simultaneous exploitation of Haiti as a, uh, you know, as a as a cash cow and also as a captive market. Absolutely. Absolutely. And we, um, you know, when it comes to the rice, um, you know, that uh, action with the rice is probably one of the earliest Clinton misdeeds in Haiti because Bill Clinton has taken personal responsibility for uh, essentially the destruction of Haitian rice farming and the replacement of that rice under the guise of, you know, with the help of the IMF, uh, with rice from his own farmers in Arkansas. Uh, which in turn uh, caused a massive exodus of um, rice farmers from the Altibonite uh, to Port-au-Prince, which uh, in turn made the 2010, the 2012 earthquake even more deadly because Port-au-Prince was already was was consequently overpopulated with all these farmers uh, seeking new ways of making a living by coming to the capital. That's right. Uh, a lot more to talk about with regard to the nefarious deeds of Bill and Hillary Clinton in Haiti. A, a lot more to discuss about Haiti historically, because I think that's a really critical part to this whole story. So uh, let's pick it up there on the other side of the break. Uh, you're listening to my conversation with Alice Backer here on Counterpunch Radio. Stick with us. We'll be right back.
we're back here on Counterpunch Radio. I'm chatting with Alice Backer. Again, she is a wealth of information. I wish I had 17 hours to do with her on Haiti because that would maybe begin to scratch the surface. But uh, you can follow her and follow all of her really important work. Uh, of course, her podcast, The Legacy of 1804, her website, kisschaosity.com. That's K-I-S-K-E-A-C-I-T-Y.com. And you can follow her on Twitter and on Facebook as well, and also as an excellent resource, HaitianBloggers.com. So, Alice, we have talked a lot about the current situation in Haiti. Just before the break, we were touching on, uh, you know, Bill Clinton and, and Hillary Clinton, the Clinton Global Initiative, and this, of course, ties directly to the political circus that's going on in the United States right now, and I find it very interesting, and, uh, you know, in speaking many times with our mutual friend and also friend of Counterpunch Radio, Pascal Robert. You know, we've talked a lot about how Clinton, that is Hillary Clinton, has essentially gotten away scot-free in this campaign on the issue of Haiti, where in fact she and her husband and their hundred million dollar foundation or whatever it's worth nowadays, they are directly responsible, probably more than any other single individuals, for the disaster that is currently unfolding in Haiti and has been actually for more than 20 years now. So can you tell me a little bit about um, how you interpret this, uh, you know, Hillary's role and Bill's role in what's happened in Haiti and how that actually relates to the U.S. election? Yeah, well, uh, we don't have time to go back over the whole the history of the Clintons in Haiti, but we we can start um, with uh, Bill Clinton having been having been called upon to return Aristide to office after the the the, the initial coup that took him out of office the first time. And uh, that return under the guise of Bill Clinton being kind of a um, Faustian bargain because, uh, you know, as a result of that, we got our first uh, U.S. troops on the ground. So the the dissolution of the of the Haitian army, which uh, gave way to the, the uh, ushering in of foreign troops. And then we got... Uh, we got the beginning of, pri- you know, the, the, the heightening of, uh, you know, ongoing privatization and essentially the opening up of the country to uh, policies by the IMF and uh, the opening up of the country to what is now um, the, the full-fledged uh, foreign occupation. That's number one. Um, number two, uh, right after uh, the uh, earthquake, uh, the Clintons, um, Bill Clinton was made the head of the CIRH, the Commission uh, the Interim Commission for Recovery in Haiti, and uh, IRCH in English, and uh, he, uh, which he ran uh, very much unilaterally. There's excellent footage of how unilaterally he ran that uh, that 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 uh, body, which I think eventually got dissolved because it was a complete debacle. Um, and uh, in in the film Raoul Peck by Raoul Peck, um, uh, Fatal Assistance, there's there's amazing footage of exactly how unilaterally Bill Clinton ran that authority and and how the the Haitian members of it had no say at all. Um, but we'll 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 fast forward to what is the most important, I think, part of what people need to know because we are in a, an an election in the United States, and Hillary is seeking Americans' votes. But in 2010, we have mounting evidence that uh, Hillary Clinton's State Department was instrumental at stealing the votes of Haitians 
uh, uh, by uh, putting into office Michelle Martelli, who, uh, who by all evidence was actually not the person who won that election. Um, and, and the evidence uh, is in, I, I mean, where do I start? Ric- Ricardo Seitenfuss, the head of the OAS, at, well, actually, he was not the head of the OAS at, at the time, but he was a, a high-ranking OAS official in Haiti at the time, who was then who was then forced to resign. Wrote a tell-all book once he returned to his home country of Brazil, where he explained exactly how the U.S. Embassy, the UN, the OAS, and the EU uh, forced uh, their uh, their desired result, i.e., that Martelli would win, forced their result uh, by. Uh, just you know, being in attendance by miscounting ballots, uh, and uh, specifically with the U.S. with the with the U.S. ambassador um, or some representative of the State Department uh, uh, announcing results before the Haitian Electoral Council could. Yeah. Uh, okay, so so that's and, and that's that's all over Ricardo Seitenfuss. And in fact, recently, Ricardo Seitenfuss has resurfaced and said that there is currently, a, 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 you know, the, part of the reason why these latest elections were finally canceled was that there there was a need to make sure that no that there was no splash of this Haiti issue and of Hillary's. Uh, uh, meddling in in Haiti, that n- none of it would pop up in these elections um, in, in the United States, and there was a need to give uh, you know the locals some busy work while you know Hillary went on and got yeah. elected. Okay, um, and so um, and so Seitenfest has 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 written it in his book. It's been reported by Georgiana Niniber of uh, you know on the Huffington Post. Um, uh, the former head of the uh, Haitian Electoral Council, Pierre-Louis Aupon, has also slipped, I guess, in an interview on the radio. And this is now a famous interview where he said, we were forced to announce this result. It was not the result. Uh, and then another member, Jeanette Cherubin, of the Haitian Electoral Council has now also published a book where she explains how this election was stolen. So, so and this is all... Uh, under Hillary's watch, Hillary was Secretary of State, and uh, even though she was not Secretary of State by the time of the second election, the uh, 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 the, the ambassador Pamela White, the U.S. ambassador Pamela White, who first who was um, in office when the process for these elections started, had been appointed by Hillary and is known as a close friend of the Clintons. So. Um, uh, and we, and then of course, now on top of it, we have Hillary's emails. <laughs> yep. And in her emails, we see all sorts of talk of, you know, uh, you know, making sure the local press is saying the right stuff. Uh, all sorts of talk about um, making sure, you know, uh, you know, uh, uh, Cheryl Mills, Hillary's assistant, coordinating with uh, the the so-called private sector in Haiti to make sure to pressure Preval to remove Jude Celestin uh, as a candidate. Um, so, I mean, evidence now abounds. Those elections were stolen. They were stolen under Hillary's watch while Hillary was uh, head of the State Department. 
Right, absolutely, and uh, I can I can hear how vigorously you're you're pounding on the desk as you say that. I think that's what it sounds like. Uh, it's great. It's great information because look, the reality is Hillary Clinton, along with her husband Bill, have essentially stage managed the entire political process in Haiti for a number of years now. And this is interesting too because you know this comes on the heels of what's happening in Honduras right now. Uh, Hillary Clinton is directly responsible for it, for providing the political cover and the initiative for that uh, right-wing coup in Honduras in 2009. This is well known, the violence and the, the assassinations going on in Honduras as we speak, including just uh, you know just in the last few days the assassination of Berta Caceres and a number of other indigenous uh, activists and organizers and leaders. Uh, all of that is blood on the hands of Hillary Clinton. And then, if we look in the Caribbean, we see something very similar. The, 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 the blood and the, the, well, the political and also quite literally the blood uh, on the hands of Bill and Hillary Clinton in Haiti. They are directly responsible for so much of the devastation, so much of the tragedy that continues to unfold in Haiti today. It's actually breathtaking the scope of um, uh, you know the the sort of insidious uh, influence and insidious role that Hillary has played in all of this, and she's getting away scot free in this election campaign. You know, no matter what anybody wants to say about Bernie Sanders, you know, you love him, you don't like him. It's sort of a moot point at, to me at this point. The fact of the matter is, nobody, including Bernie Sanders, has called out Hillary for her role in Haiti or in Honduras. Nobody has really brought out these issues into the into the limelight and said, hey, why don't you explain why you and your husband run Haiti as if you're the viceroys of that island, as if you, it is your personal kingdom? Why don't you explain how many billions have been siphoned out of that country in the interests of your real estate developer friends, in the interests of the hotel chains and all of the rest of that? None of this is even mentioned in the uh, mainstream narrative on Hillary's campaign. Well, uh, to the Washington Post credit, <laughs> uh, and we know that it's, it's not a perfect outlet, but they did put out, uh, I, I don't know if it was an editorial, but there was uh, an article recently saying, um, you know, Hillary Clinton has to answer for her actions in, in Honduras and Haiti. But that really is, I guess, the most mainstream. That is, the, yeah. I think, the, the, the most it's gone. That's a um, peep. And, and, That's like a peep that nobody right. really... And it, yeah. and, it had, and it had no effect whatsoever. I right. mean, I, I believe, uh, did Honduras even come up in the debates? I don't, I don't think the, the Honduras coup came up in the debates. But at the Miami debate, there was quite a bit of, uh, you know, definitely quite a bit of um, discussion of Latin America, of Cuba, of... Uh, the Sandinistas, etc. But no, nothing about her involvement in the coup or about uh, in Honduras or her, about her man, meddling in elections in Haiti. Yeah, and this is this is what I find uh, particularly galling about all of this is that she is ripe for attack on all of these issues because it's not like you know you're trying to indirectly tie her to these things. She is directly involved in these things. I mean, quite literally, from you know bringing in Lonnie Davis to sell you know in Washington the coup in, in Honduras and to provide it with political legitimacy to her husband and her foundation and her daughter and her friends being directly involved in everything that's gone on in Haiti. So it's not even like, you know, you're just digging up dirt. These are simply the objective facts. 
Yeah, exactly. Um, on so many accounts, uh, the facts are there. Uh, there's there's and and there's really not much one can do to uh, you know to uh, to dispel them. They're they're just there. Uh, the the witnesses are there. The people are there. Um, uh, when, when, when it comes out in her emails, I mean, there's just really no way of, um, of saying it wasn't, you know? Um, but I mean, I, I suspect that, uh, you know, what's happening is that, um, she's, you know, she's just as powerful, uh, in the democratic party. I mean, you know, it's, What's been fascinating to me is to see how a lot of the stuff and a lot of the impunity with with which the Clintons operate in Haiti, they they operate like that here, too. Yeah, exactly. Um, right. Which is kind of fascinating. I, I mean, they must really have a lot of power um, to be able to, to get away with the stuff they get away with here. The, you know, Bill Clinton has been electioneering. Um, he's been doing illegal stuff um, all throughout this campaign. There's now allegations that uh, either the DNC or, uh, you know, well, certainly the DNC may have infiltrated Bernie Sanders campaign in, in, in some states. Yep. Um, by and large, there's this there is this she's also heading towards some form of a coronation herself. So um, so a lot of what we've seen, basically, you know, the way they operate and kind of that entitlement that they operate with, with um, in Haiti is exactly, uh, you know, how they operate here, which shouldn't be surprising, but, but kind of is. Um, they really do get away with a whole lot. Uh, and we can, we can also get into the foundation and, and, and how the, fi- the foundation was used as, was probably used as a, as a, as a source of bribes um, while she was Secretary of State. Um, apparently that's under investigation right now. Um, and, and, you know, Haiti was mentioned as one of the things that, you know, supposedly she was receiving money for at the foundation from these governments. So, so Haiti's become a Haiti's become some sort of a pretext, apparently, specifically that uh, whatever uh, go- monies the the foundation received from the Moroccan government while she was secretary of state was supposedly to help Haiti. Yeah, and you know, on the one hand, it's a it's a source of um, you know donations for her campaign, and on the uh, you know on another hand, even indirectly, if it has nothing to do with the campaign, the Clinton Global Initiative, you know, their their organization, all of the affiliate organizations that they work with are essentially the forum for political horse trading. You know, I mean, the trading of favors, the embezzlement of funds, all kinds of illegal activity that the Clintons are involved in in many ways. Is Haiti is one of the main hubs of all of that activity. Yeah, absolutely, and it, it's been fascinating to to find that out <laughs> as uh, as the election has unfolded here in the states. I think. Um, I want to touch on something else, though. Um, you know, we've spent the you know the the entire conversation here talking about contemporary and uh, issues and recent history, but I want to broaden this out further because for me, uh, no conversation about Haiti uh, is complete without understanding Haiti's uh, historical role, its place in history, its place in uh, anti-colonial resistance, and Haiti. Oftentimes, it's it's forgotten that. Haiti is the leading 
edge, the the leading light of anti-colonial resistance in 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 history. So you know, your podcast is called Legacy of 1804, and I think that that's such a great name for a podcast because really, 1804 is that watershed. This is the rebellion in Haiti, the rebellion against the colonial, uh, you know, the European colonial forces, and not just France, of course, not just Napoleonic France, but really the entire colonial system, including the British, including the newly created United States, including all of the other forces. Haiti, um, you know, this this was the crown jewel of the French colonial empire. And when Haiti, this, you know, this slave colony revolted against the colonial masters, I think that in many ways, Haiti has been paying the price for trying to be independent for the last 200 years. So um, tell us a little bit about, um, you know, well, you could start just by telling us why you called your podcast Legacy of 1804, and specifically, you know, why Haiti is so important from an anti-colonial, anti-imperialist perspective. Well, I love how you just uh, asked me a question and answered it all at once. (laughs) I'm sorry. I'm sorry about that. Well, maybe, I don't maybe know what ex- to add. Expand, expand on that. I don't know what like. to add. Obviously, um, my podcast is called Legacy of 1804 for all the reasons um, you just mentioned. Um, and and because, it, well, and I mean specifically because as we're undergoing an occupation, which is specifically what 1804 uh, was there to prevent, right? 1804 was an assertion that we may be black, we may be slaves, but we deserve freedom. And uh, that that was quite obviously revolutionary um, and remains revolutionary today, um, because not only was this was not just a question of, you know, losing uh, slaves in Haiti. But I mean, you know, at the time, slaves were essentially, you know, uh, you know, slavery was a commerce. It was, you know, uh, you know, dealing a blow to the uh, to the French slave owners in Haiti is the equivalent of dealing a blow to Wall Street today. This was huge. This was huge, not just from a perspective of white supremacy, but also from a perspective of of um, from just a, a, the perspective of finance. And so um, so Haitians said, no, we you know, we the, the African born slaves who who did um, who uh, said yes to slavery sorry, said yes to freedom and no to slavery, were essentially making making a statement that had real economic repercussions for very rich people and powerful people of the time. And uh, and not just the French, but also had uh, implications for all of the other slave owners all, all over the Americas, in nearby Caribbean countries, and right here in the United States, where, uh, where you know, where you had the slave South. And so, um, um, so the, the show is called Legacy of 1804. The show was starting during, during the UN occupation. And it, it's, it's a lot to remind Haitians that, uh, you know, if we just look to our own history, um, this occupation is incorrect. If, if, if we just look to the, the birth of Haiti, um, that in itself is an assertion against this kind of um, military presence on our soil and against this commandeering of our politics and of our destiny from the outside. Um, so that's, 
that's um, so that's a lot of why um, the show is called Legacy of 1804. And yes, um, you know. If today, because very often people are like, oh, yeah, but it happened 200 years ago. How could it still have effects today? But, you know, imagine somebody dealing a big blow to Wall Street today. Um, do you think that uh, 200 years from now uh, it wouldn't still have repercussions? Do you think that 200 years from now, uh, you know, whoever, whoever continues to uh, be at the helm of the global financial system isn't going to, uh, you know, remember that a big blow was dealt to Wall Street. I mean, a lot of what happens today happens because, um, uh, you know, for example, I mean, a, a lot of people believe that, you know, the we have the IMF and the World Bank so that what governments decide doesn't matter so much anymore, so that a government can no longer, you know, so that to shield corporations from the effects of, you know, governments deciding to nationalize uh, resources, for example. Um, and so, you know, global capital has memory. Global capital remembers and global capital learns from history in order to uh, prevent uh, blows in the future. Um, and so and, and in that sense, Haiti remains, you know, people know Haiti remains one of those places that, you know, dealt a big blow not only to white supremacy, but also to, glo to global capital in 1804. And uh, for that purpose and for that reason, Haiti is, is, is always under watch. <laughs> and for whatever reason, people always want to come back and subjugate uh, this, uh, this uh, incredibly... Um, uh, you know, gutsy people. I think you're absolutely right in talking about this sort of, you know, the, the equivalent of basically striking a blow against Wall Street, because uh, in in many ways, you know, uh, San, San Domingo, you know, San, Santo Domingo or San, San Domingo or, you know, the, the island as it was at the time was not just a cash cow for France. It really, in many ways, it was the centerpiece of the, uh, to a large extent, of the entire colonial uh, system in the, you know, in the um, in the Caribbean space. Let's let's call it that. And it was, you know, a source of raw materials. It was a source of this, uh, you know, part of the slave trade. It was, in many ways, a battleground for influence between the British Empire and the French Empire. It was at the center of global geopolitical conflict. And so in the midst of all of that and on the heels of a, you know, a landowner's revolution in the in the British colonies of North America, you then saw a slave colony in revel in revolt have a revolution against its colonial masters, which was taking the North American revolution much further, right? This is this is now a new level of radicalism. I think one of the most important works, uh, at least for you know, for my own edification, I think for anyone who's interested in Haiti, is C.L.R. James's uh, famous book *Black Jacobins*, in which he really uh, provides an in-depth analysis of everything that happened in Haiti, the class forces and the economic interests that were at play there, and so you have also this sort of 
let's call it two-tiered uh, resistance. You know, on on the one hand, you have the famous uh, uh, Toussaint Louverture. You know, the 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 leader, the statesman of the Haitian Revolution. But then you also have somebody like Dessalines, who is uh, far more of a radical, far more of uh, what we what we might consider, you know, a a a forceful, um, you know, voice of revolution. Somebody who was not really interested in. Uh, con- you know, reconciliation, somebody who wanted independence. And I think to some degree, we see a, a reflection of that in Haiti today. You have different kinds of political forces that stand in opposition to what's happening there. Some, uh, perhaps like Lavelas, who might be a bit more what we might call uh, liberal, you know, in their in their outlook, versus some of the more radical voices that we have seen emerge at various times who have been targeted for repression. So I think understanding the history of Haiti is directly relevant to understanding how it's operating today. Absolutely. Yeah. You, you can't, um, divorce, uh, Haiti today from 1804. Uh, and that is why, even though on my podcast, what we discuss is current affairs by and large, it is called legacy of 1804 because I never want people to, um, to forget too often Haitians themselves forget. Um, for example, in, um, everything that's happened recently with the Dominican Republic and with the deportation of, uh, uh, the, of Dominicans of Haitian descent, but also of, of Haitians in the DR. Uh, you know, I've had to remind people, uh, Haitians mostly, that, you know, yeah, the, you should not be surprised that this is happening. And if you understood the legacy of 1804, you would understand that um, in 1804 and leading up to the uh, the slaves in Haiti freeing our, our ancestors, um, the, the enslaved in Haiti freeing themselves, um, what happened was in the DR, um, there, the DR, which is right next door, which is right on the island, that that eastern part is where um, basically all of the uh, slave owners of the time, whatever nationality, vowed to contain this revolution. And so the seeds were planted then to make sure that the revolution itself did not spread to, to, to the Dominican Republic, that um, Haitians did not take over um, th- that part of the island, which at the time was still uh, enslaved, and um, to make sure that it didn't leave the shores of Haiti. And that is why it, you know, anti-Aitianismo had to be institutionalized in Dominican school books, including Dominican school books of Dominicans of African descent. And this kind of fear of the Haitian had to be institutionalized and started being institutionalized since then. Um, and so that that's why you can't just look at Haiti without um, without without always looking back at that crucial moment and um, and 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 all that it awakened and unleashed on Haiti at 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 the time and since. Absolutely, and then from from the perspective of the United States, we can never forget that uh, the that the the slave owners and the power the powers that be the ruling class in the at what at that time was a relatively new uh, independent United States they looked at Haiti as a very very dangerous uh, precedent a a warning you know maybe even a premonition of what might happen in the United States particularly in the slave in the 
in the slave-owning South if they didn't um, basically exert control, exert dominance over Haiti and over the Caribbean. I mean, part of the Monroe Doctrine is all about how U.S. imperialism operates in the Western Hemisphere, and I think a very good argument could be made that Haiti was in many ways public enemy number one when it comes to the Monroe Doctrine because Haiti represented a very, very dangerous precedent. Absolutely. I want to ask you one other question, uh, if I could. You know, we I think that there is also a very neo-colonial racist uh, perspective that really bubbles to the surface when talking about Haiti and specifically, and this is one that really irks me every time I hear it, uh, you know, when Haiti is described as, quote unquote, the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere, um, there's something deeply uh, neo-colonial about that kind of description because it it sort of ignores or deliberately conceals the fact that Haiti is actually quite rich in the grand scheme of things in in terms of resources, in terms of its geography, in terms of uh, its uh, human capacity. It is that Haiti has been deliberately made to be impoverished by countless occupations, countless aggressions, by the destruction of its uh, human and political and economic capacity. Really, seemingly every few decades, Haiti is brought to heel once again. So can you talk a little bit about that and how this sort of neo-colonial attitude really comes to the fore when talking about Haiti? Uh, yeah, the the phrase poorest country in the Western Hemisphere appears to be, uh, uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's a code. Uh, it comes up in just about every article r- written by uh, specifically non-Haitian media about exactly. Haiti. Exactly, yep. Um, and uh, as has been... Um, uh, pointed out to me recently that, you know, that uh, code phrase could have been something like the first black republic, but it, it never is. Yeah, um, you know, point. I mean, it could have been Haiti, the first black republic, um, but it's uh, the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere. And I think that's part of the punishment, right? That's part of the, this is what you get if you rebel. This is what you get if you say no, if you said no to slavery, and if you rebel against the wishes of the West. Mm-hmm. Uh, Haitians are punished. Um, you know, we've even had um, uh, American right-wingers say on TV that, you know, we made a pact with the devil and so that we're cursed. I mean, you know, but really the curse is to have said no to slavery. That's yeah, the curse. That's right. That's, that's right. <laughs> um, and, uh, and so, yes. And so, um, and so it's, it's not a coincidence that indeed there's, there's, there's constant brain drain. We know that 80% of, um, you know, Haiti's college graduates live abroad. We know, and I've seen and I've witnessed a, um, a, a pre- precipitation of that brain drain uh, ever since the 90s, um, where essentially countries like Canada um, and the United States have, uh, you know, taken basically all of the, all of the, what I would call the local intelligentsia, um, and kind of, you know, offered um, specifically in, in, in French speaking Canada, they've they've, you know, a lot of, you know, the Haitian middle management is gone. And so what you have is you have the most vulnerable among Haitians now, um, uh, you know, essentially at the um, at the beck and call of these uh, foreign forces um, on the ground. Um, and your question was was it's, it's, it's hard to kind of, you know, 
answer your questions, but we, we know also that um, media-wise, there's a excellent research that's been done by Professor Manushka Celeste, who is a uh, communications uh, professor, who, who says that you know the portrayal of Haitians in the U.S. press and in the U.S. mainstream press always follows and is at the service of uh, U.S. foreign policy. And so whenever there's about to be an occupation, whenever troops are about to be sent, uh, you will get uh, coverage of Haitians uh, showing them as you know helpless down to the pictures. Um, whenever there's also, and, and also whenever there's an influx of um, Haitian uh, boat people through uh, Florida, uh, you know, of of Haitian migrants, uh, you get uh, coverage that ultimately uh, telegraphs what is going to work for U.S. foreign policy that that sets the stage. Um, And since right now U.S. foreign policy is occupation, essentially, uh, most of the coverage tends to show Haitians helpless. And that is the context in which you should see, you should um, construe this poorest country in in the Western Hemisphere phrase. That's right. And, you know, one of the other things that comes to my mind, too, is, um, you know, the de- the developments in Latin America since 1999 and the ascendance of Hugo Chavez and the Bolivarian Revolution and the growing uh, interconnectedness of the, um, you know, of the anti-U.S. bloc in Latin America. Haiti was part of that. You know, Haiti was a major beneficiary of Venezuela's Petro Caribe uh, uh, dealings, which was designed to basically provide Venezuelan energy at very low costs, far below market value, in order to basically subsidize the economic development that wasn't dependent upon the U.S. and on neoliberal finance capital. And that's, I think, one of the other aspects of what's happened in Haiti that is very rarely discussed is that Haiti attempted to uh, forge an economic path that was to, to varying degrees independent, including, and I remember very vividly when Hugo Chavez went to Haiti and he was cheered by, I mean, tens of thousands of people in the streets because of what Chavez and Bolivarianism represented in a place like Haiti with its longstanding uh, tradition of independence and, and you know, uh, anti-colonial mentality. And I think that's another aspect of why Haiti is continually being punished by the U.S., yeah, there's no question that uh, there's always been a, a Marxism has always uh, been a, a big influence on um, Haitian intellectuals. Uh, a lot of what Papa Doc did and a, a lot of what allowed Papa Doc, uh, François Duvalier, uh, to, you know, to start his dictatorship and maintain power was that, you know, whatever he did, he promised the United States that, you know, there would be no uh, Castro, Castro-type revolution in Haiti, mm-hmm. uh, no Cuban-type revolution in Haiti. And yeah, and that has come... Uh, a lot of young Haitian leftists, uh, often of my parents' generation, uh, had to be repressed um, and had to be exiled and had to be killed. And um, um, and so, uh, yeah, that that's always been an undercurrent. It remains an undercurrent. Uh, it is one of the reasons Haitians are very political <laughs> and everybody knows it. And yeah, and that's why, uh, you know, close watch has to be kept on Haitians, and if possible, the resources taken and the um, the uh, you know the local resources, the local uh, intellectual resources 
and the and the and the human resources as much as possible have to be either taken away or just uh, removed from 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 the actual Haitian landscape as much as possible. And that that's definitely what we've seen. Yeah, I mean, it's basically the danger the the danger of a good example. Absolutely, um, and. Um, but, but that doesn't mean that, uh, you know, what happens is when Haitians leave, Haitians stay connected. Um, and, and that's why, by the way, I, uh, I aggregate Haitian content online. Today, one of the best bloggers, one of the people who keeps us the most up to date on the blow by blow of what happens, the person who I went to read to prepare for your show is a Haitian blogger in France, is, is a Haitian woman based in France who, you know, uh, gives us the blow by blow every day and who's read as much in Haiti as here in the United States. Um, and so it's, you know, the, the fact that the mistake that people make is that when these forces get removed from inside of Haiti itself, it doesn't mean they die. You know, Haitians remember that they've left something behind that is very vulnerable and, uh, and, 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 and try to, you know, try to patch up all, all the pieces as much as possible wherever they are. And that's one of the reasons why I aggregate all the content generate, generated by Haitians in one place. It's not all political. It's not all of the same, um, you know, uh, political ideology, but uh, it's, it's good to have it all in one place uh, where people can go kind of reconstitute um, the whole. But um, where we are, we are now basically looking ahead to May to see if these elections are going to take place. Uh, many believe they will not. Many believe that it's just not going to be possible to to do all, all of these elections because on top of that, Martelli butchered not just the presidential election, but also uh, parliamentary elections, municipal elections. The current uh, Justin Privert does have to do all of that within 120 days, and, and, and many have doubts. Well, I think that um, we'll have to we'll have to wait and see. We'll have to follow it closely, and hopefully, uh, Alice, we can have you back on the show to give us an update uh, once uh, once whatever happens has happened. Yeah, no, and I think uh, since everybody wants to end on a positive note, and I do too, I think it is very good that um, the uh, the Haitian people stood up against the second set of fraudulent elections. I think in 2010, people were weakened enough by the earthquake that um, you know the the fraud then went by, and some some were ready to believe that Martelli had actually won that election. But in 2015, after all the evidence had come out that that election had been fraudulent, uh, people did not take it sitting, sitting down. And it is, yet again, the Haitian people who stopped um, that, uh, that coronation of, of Jovenel Moïse. Unfortunately, what's happening now could actually have the effect of demobilizing people. Um, so, but, but, but I think people are still very vigilant um, and, uh, and expect to get nothing for example, there's there's a whole conversation right now. People want an audit to take place um, of the Martelli administration, um, and uh, you know it's it's not quite happening. But but there are persistent voices requiring an audit because, of course, uh, lots has disappeared from the Haitian coffers when Martelli stepped down. 
Absolutely. Still a lot of questions left unanswered, but I, I agree with you. A lot more to uh, look forward to, and hopefully the resistance in Haiti can continue to mobilize and to organize itself both at the grassroots level and also politically, because I think that uh, to a large extent, no matter what the corporate media wants to say about it, Haiti is, uh, in, in, in many respects, it is one of the front lines in the resistance to uh, U.S. imperialism. Yeah, I would say so. I would say so. And um, it's but it's definitely something to be uh, that we have to remind ourselves. I think sometimes Haitians themselves forget. Absolutely. Well, um, we'll have to leave it there. Alice Backer, I want to thank you again for coming on Counterpunch Radio. Alice Backer is a lawyer and social media strategist. Um, follow the news aggregator HaitianBloggers.com on, um, at the website, also on Facebook and on Twitter. Follow her work at her website, KissChaosity.com. That's K-I-S-K-E-A-C-I-T-Y.com. And, uh, you know, on Facebook and Twitter as well. And, of course, the podcast, absolutely. Absolutely essential resource, Legacy of 1804. Follow all her work. Uh, Alice, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks so much, Eric, for having me. <laughs>